Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it has features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for Behind the Balance Sheet for more details. When I asked financial historian and author Russell Napier if he would be a guest in our macro mini series, he suggested that we cover the capital cycle in an age of financial repression, which was the subject of his last quarterly for his institutional clients. And he suggested that we invite Jeremy Hosking, the former partner of Marathon Asset Management and co-author of the book Capital Account, which introduced the concept of the capital cycle to the investment world. After some gentle persuasion, Jeremy agreed, and we had a really interesting discussion, which I hope you'll enjoy. Before I let you listen to that, however, I think a few words of explanation will be helpful as we cover a lot of ground and the subject itself is quite complicated. Of course, the capital cycle concept is now well known. You should pay more attention to supply than traditional investors who tend to focus on demand, and you should buy into industries where capacity is exiting. But as we explore here, the capital cycle can be viewed on multiple levels and in a more subtle fashion. If you think about it, for the last 10 plus years since the global financial crisis, the global monetary system has favored growth stocks. We've had abundant, cheap and falling rate financial capital and it's flooded markets 
That has favoured growth stocks and the supply of capital to traditional industries has been restricted. The recent ESG vol has further starved industries like energy and commodities of investment, which makes them much more interesting today. But we're now moving to a world of financial repression and higher inflation, which will be less favorable to equity indices. Value stocks are likely to come back into vogue, as will stocks with inflation protection. Highly valued growth stocks are likely to fare less well in this environment. Further complicating the issue is a trend to deglobalization, a new trend which is likely to be an ongoing feature going forward, which will require more capital to go to traditional industries at a time when that capital is less abundant. I hope this helps to set the scene for our discussion. And I added a postscript with Russell at the end to just round the subject off. So please do listen to that right at the end. I hope you enjoy this. And it's a subject which I inevitably am going to come back to both in the podcast and in my new newsletter and Substack. So check out the related letter that I've sent to my subscribers, which you can find on my website or on Substack under Behind the Balance Sheet. And please let me know what you think about all this and I will share your comments with Russell and Jeremy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Russell, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here. And as usual, I would like to ask you both how you got into investment management. Russell, your dad was a butcher. I guess he didn't have aspirations that you should become a financial historian. And you actually studied and trained to be a lawyer, I think. How did you get into investing? Well, my father had aspirations that I could be anything except a butcher. This was his aspiration. So it, uh, you start jumping hurdles and you never know when you end up. So I wanted to work in Edinburgh. So I fell in love with the city of Edinburgh, uh, having spent six years getting qualified in English law. So that was a bit of a, not a very bright thing to do. So the only people who would give me a job, and I mean it, the only people who offered me a job anywhere in the United Kingdom were a tiny little investment boutique called Bailey Gifford. So I took the job because it paid quite well. I hadn't the faintest idea what fund management was, but I got to live in Edinburgh. So chance is the answer, Steve. It's funny. There's many of the people in the podcast, that, that's been their story. How about you, Jeremy? Did you, was it chance or did you always want to be a successful investor? Well, it was chance and a form of nepotism because I was having a family lunch with friends and the host was a giant in the city of London. And he turned to me and asked what what I what I had in mind for my life. And I said, it was 1975, I said, I, sir, am a monetarist. And he said, when can you start? <laughs> and who's that? A fellow called Richard Thornton. And the company was GT Management, a remarkable company. GT, that was so Roger Yates was there Roger and Nick players. Train. Yes, yes. So you overlapped with them or Yes. And a few more whose names are got on to be legion in the city of London. So do you do you still keep in touch with Nick Train? Because you've got very opposite, very different, not opposite. But well, very different Nick, Nick and I were working in different offices, so cool. we didn't we didn't uh, speak to him. But we were we were officially and unofficially on the same team. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. And you um, you got together to launch Marathon in 1986, was it? Uh, the end of 1986, yes. So you must have been quite young then. Um, 
well, relatively, I suppose that's right. Oh well, maybe. Well, well, I mean, all, all the three founders of Marathon. I think I was twenty-eight, and I was the oldest. So, how did you have the confidence to set up a, a your own business at that that point? Because that had been quite unusual back then in the eighties. Yeah, well, we had a. We were working. We were two of the three founders were working at this company called GT Management. And GT Management was uh, officially a growth-style investor with a bias towards technology. Um, and uh, in 1983, the first of a long line of technology busts came along. And these, um, I think there was something like, this is mentioned in Capital Account, there was something like 200 disk drive companies in America. So, of course, various technology sectors went into freefall because of the excessive competition. And... Uh, I and some of my colleagues were arguing for a more value-oriented approach. And that eventually gave rise to the thinking behind the capital cycle as an investment approach. Well, we definitely will come back to capital account and the idea of the capital cycle. But before we, we do that, let's just paint the macro picture. Because inflation, so we're recording this and on the day that um, US inflation has hit 7.9%, which is... Long time since it was last there. Russell, you've said that you see inflation over the next few years being at 4% and spikes above that. I mean, have the recent um, tragic events in Ukraine altered your view or is that, or is that the floor now? What, what's, the, what's your prognosis? Well, they make inflation more likely uh, because inflation is everywhere and at all times a monetary phenomenon. So the question for me is not, is the oil price up? Is the oil price down? It is, does this legitimize the creation of even more money? And the pandemic's already done that. So the, the monetary revolution that occurred in March, May to May 2020 was that governments issued credit guarantees to banks. And banks then, for the first time in their history, issued huge amounts of loans into a recession. And a lot of money was created in a recession, which is still out there, obviously, it hasn't gone away. And I've been told over and over and over again by knowledgeable people that this was a one-off emergency measure to offer these things. And then just a few weeks ago, the government of the United Kingdom offered a similar guarantee to Jaguar Land Rover. The banks lent 600 million to Jaguar Land Rover. Uh, not all of that, but a large proportion of that was guaranteed by the government. So now the banks are making another loan guaranteed by the government. And obviously, as everybody knows who's listening to this, when the fractional reserve banking system makes loans, it creates money. And then we had an emergency in the energy crisis once again before the war. And the government said to the banks, you will lend money to the energy companies and this will permit the energy companies not to pass on in full the price of energy to its, energy to its customers. So once again, money is created. So the British government has decided that the best way to attack inflation is through printing money. Now, warfare has the same effect. We will, um, I can guarantee you that before the, the year is out, there will be large loans going to defence contractors. I did notice that we're now backing shipbuilding as of yesterday, according to the British government. It'll be interesting to see if that's funded by bank loans. So, Steve, as long as the government is involved in forcing, cajoling, forcing, I prefer forcing, I call it uh, foie gras capitalism, <laughs> forcing the banks to make loans, they are making money and will have inflation and the oil prices can go up and down. But against that background of much higher levels of growth in the money supply, that is where I come up with the answer to inflation. And all of it is so much easier to justify in a period of a national security emergency. But it is worth remembering before the national security emergency, we had an inequality emergency, a climate emergency, a health emergency, and now a national security emergency. 
There are so many emergencies about that it'd be difficult to see how we're not going to get it so-called emergency finance. And emergency finance means more money, and it means more inflation. I should just point out that when you're talking about loans to energy companies, you're talking about the UK electricity sector primarily for those, because this podcast is listened to by people in 100 countries, would you believe? I find that hard to believe, but that's what Spotify tells me. There may be people who've never heard of Boris Johnson listening to this. They should No, everybody, everybody's heard of Boris okay. Johnson. Um, Jeremy, so... Do you agree with that view? I mean, you can remember inflation? Yeah, um, yes. Yes, and I do agree with that view. It's been my view really since the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and it's a view that's been wrong for about 10 of the last 12 years. Um, I think when I think Russell called it beautifully in 2020, didn't you change your mind on this? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and said it hasn't been inflation now, but now things have changed because effectively the central banks are putting money directly into the hands of the the public and private sector companies, whereas before they were simply putting it into the banks. And the banks had two departments. There was one department taking government money and there was another department controlled by the regulators telling them not to lend it. <laughs> so the velocity of circulation collapsed. Mm. And it's a, it's a topic in economics that's basically received virtually no attention in the last 12 years. Why the monetarist model from 2010 to 2020 simply didn't function. It was a, it was a I'm, not an, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I can't help you on that, but I am struck by the absence of commentary on it. Funny enough, whenever you talk to an economist, they say they're not an economist. Russell, Russell will say he's a financial historian. <laughs> Chris Wood says he's a strategist. He trained as an economist, but he's a strategist. But, Steve, um, Steve, we have to say this. If you've no formal qualification in economics and claim to be an economist, the Economist Union gets desperately upset. Oh, of course. So um, if we're going to have inflation, and Russell's call was incredibly well-timed, but Russell has taught his clients to expect his prognosis not to happen for several years afterwards. So, you know, this has been amazing how fast this has happened. Mm. I mean, you're you must be surprised yourself. Sure. I mean, what you're pointing out, Steve, is my timing isn't always immaculate. <laughs> I, I, plead I plead guilty to that. Uh, Yes and no, because something really, really important happened very quickly. Yes. I mean, these credit bank guarantees happened really in an afternoon for tens of billions, and not just in the United Kingdom, kind of everywhere. So to me, that was a clear structural change in the system. So finally, maybe I had more chance of being right on the timing. I, uh, I wasn't being critical. I was only re <laughs> reflecting what you've publicly said, said yourself. Absolutely. But, but if we have got inflation and we haven't had inflation for years and years, are you changing, Jeremy, are you changing your investment style? Or are you just doing everything the same way? Um, well, we've made, we hold, our portfolios are very stable for long periods of time. Um, we hold a great number of shares. And uh, the only, I mean, the main theme of what my colleagues and I have been doing in the last three years has been reducing exposure to the digital winners at high prices and buying buying shares in uh, um, companies which have bounce back potential. Fortunately, one of those sectors has been the natural resource sector. So, of course, there are many sectors like hospitality and travel that haven't bounced back at all. But commodities have bounced back rather splendidly. And do you think that's going to continue? I haven't done any selling. Okay, that's a, that tells us. I, I mean, Russell. Just following on from inflation, you, you've you talked about financial repression. And in fact, I Googled financial repression because I wanted to make sure that I had a proper definition mm -hmm. of it. 
And when you Google financial repression, one of the automatic um, offers, one of the auto suggestions on Google is financial repression, Russell Napier. So obviously you have become known as being one of the experts in financial repression. Can you just explain the concept and can you then just explain how governments are going to be able to keep bond yields low? I had a conversation this week with an economist who claims to be an economist and Roger Nightingale, who thinks that yields are going to go to 8%. Okay. Well, I, obviously, I think he's wrong. He might be wrong in a, in a free market and market-determined prices. But I think that's one of the problems with economists. They seem to assume that we always live in a market, uh, an era of market-determined prices. Jeremy mentioned 1986. That was big buying. So you know, it wasn't too long before that that this country lived with non-market-determined prices. The uh, financial repression, by the way, I think the term comes from Ronald McKinnon, which would be in the late 60s, but it's, it's something we've been familiar with since at least World War I, artificially depressing bond yields. It comes with lots of other things, Steve, which I'm sure we'll get onto, uh, but the mechanism is really relatively straightforward. It's been underway for some time by central banks, uh, but as Jeremy mentioned, a lot of the liabilities the central banks created in purchasing those bonds and keeping yields low sat dormant in the banks, partially for one of the reasons that he, that he mentioned. So it didn't turn out to be that dangerous or as dangerous as many economists thought it might be. But you can't do that forever, particularly in a period of high inflation, because to be throwing that liquidity onto the fire of inflation is particularly dangerous. It's actually a road to hyperinflation if you keep doing that. So they're going to have to find somebody else to buy all these bonds and keep the yields down. And, and somebody who in doing so does not create more money, does not add more liquidity to the fire. And that is the, the, uh, the saver. That is who has always done it in the past. Uh, if you will th go back to Neil Ferguson's The Cash Nexus, countries that successfully fight wars tend to do it by mobilizing their savings uh, through the issuance of bonds, often at particularly appalling yields. And the those who fail tend to print money. So we, I'm not saying we won't do a little bit of printing money as well. That's the basic tenet of the whole thing. But that's how we do it. Now, most economists won't accept that because I say nobody would be stupid enough to give up the market economy. You know, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. I expect the Spanish Inquisition. They're here, red in tooth and claw. Uh, and that's why I differ from economists. And of course, I'm doing that based entirely upon analysis of the past. And the last time our debt to GDP ratio in aggregate, public and private, was this high. These are the things we did. So it's not an outrageous forecast to say these are the things we'll do again, even though none of them are taught in economic classes or in finance textbooks. And and what will be the mechanism? Will it be yield curve control? I mean, you can't force people to buy bonds, can you? You can force people to buy bonds quite easily. And some of you people listening to this will be in the life insurance sector will be chuckling at that statement because they've been forced to buy bonds for years uh, on their asset liability modeling. So, of course, you can do that. You can just say that saving is a very dangerous thing. We live in dangerous times and risk-free assets must be held in quantity. And therefore, a certain percentage of a life fund or a defined benefit fund, even certainly defined, even as far as the defined contribution fund, uh, must be held in the form of government bonds. If you think uh, this will be relevant only to people in the United Kingdom, until recently, your pension on maturity had to be forced into an annuity. Well, that was forcing you to buy, ultimately, government bond and long-term debt securities. And that was a legacy from the old system, which we only just got rid of just in time for the new system. So there are many, many ways, but it's, it's through the powers of regulation. So forcing you, the individual, Steve Clapham, to buy government bonds is quite tricky. And as, I wouldn't know how. And as an Englishman, or in your case, a Scotsman's home is his castle, the interference of property rights to that degree are not really acceptable. But they will willy-nilly interfere with the savings that you happen to have in a regulated financial institution. That's, that's legitimate. It's been done, and it will be done again. And it's called global macro 
about macro prudential regulation. It kind of rhymes with or scans with motherhood and apple pie. So when you say, uh, which financial institutions? I've just written a huge report on this for clients. I look through the flow of fund statistics of the United States of America to see who's got a lot of money and it isn't in bonds. So you start, for Amer- in the case of America, it's private pensions, state and local government retirement schemes. And the third one, it will come back to me. But there are actually quite a large pots of savings with virtually no government bonds. And it's the same in the United Kingdom. So the life insurance companies have been repressed. They do have a lot of government bonds, but even there you can push them further forward. So there's plenty of pots of money to be stolen. People always say, oh, and when you get a situation like that, you get hyperinflation. Hyperinflation comes after you've stolen all the savings, (laughs) not before. There's no point in going to hyperinflation until you have abused the saving system first. So that's our first port of call. And these um, pots of money, are they in the equity market today? Yes, they are. I mean, I, I've looked that up. So, uh, I mean, for I mean, 40% of most of those funds would be in equities direct. Usually, our 20, 25% is in mutual funds, which is which themselves are 70% in equities. So if you're going to force, uh, this is the problem for the equity market. If you're going to force these institutions to buy government bonds, you're forcing them to sell equities. And the only equities that can sell are the ones they own, and the only ones they own are ones in the index, on the whole, because they tend to be uh, whisper it softly, closet indexers. Well, Jeremy's not a closet indexer, but well, this doesn't sound good for for anybody's investing in equities, right? I mean, what, do you think Russell's right? Well, I fully agree with the punters who say the equity market seems overvalued. I think a more dominant theme is, though, the crowding in big index stocks and uh, a small number of very large technology companies, otherwise known as growth stocks. But if you think that equities are, are fully valued or overvalued, I mean, presumably, I mean, are, are you able to hold a lot of cash or would you do, would you do that in, in principle? Or? Well, we're, we're able to do it, but an alternative strategy is to hold shares that are inexpensive which tend to be very unpopular. <laughs> when I looked at the last US repression, Steve, which really only gets going after, in their case, after the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement and the, and the oil shocks, the stock market does very badly in aggregate. The S&P uh, does not beat inflation. But uh, this is 1966 to 1982. You know, the, the S&P goes from 1,000 to 600. But value stocks do provide a positive real return over that period. And in that period as well, small cap stocks produced a positive real return. But if you held the index stocks, you lost a lot of money. And of course, if we move forward a little bit from 66 to 72, which is the peak of the infamous Nifty 50, well, you lost more than a little bit of your money than being in, in, in overvalued stocks. So my own view is that despite this compulsory liquidation of some equities, the place to be is equities, just not the ones that are owned widely by savings institutions who will be forced to sell them. And every equity is owned by somebody. But in the, in the institutional space, they're definitely under-owned equities. Well, it's interesting you bring up the Nifty 50 because there's a lot of parallels with the FANG stocks and the Nifty 50, very, very highly valued, can do, can do any wrong. And as you say, the value stocks did okay over that period, probably did better than okay if you did it from 72 to 82. Mm. Yeah, po- well, I, I just happened to measure it from 66, but positive real returns in that environment. It's pretty spectacular, given the annual rate of inflation through the 70s, and that's what value stocks managed to produce. Of course, if you're starting either from 66 or 72, you're starting off, if you're looking at value stocks, you're starting off very, very low multiples, even, I mean, much lower than they are today. I think you should ask Jeremy just how cheap the value stocks are or expensive they are. I mean, he's the expert. Well, well the, uh, the question is multiples of what? 
Well, whatever you like. We we like sales. Well, the trap the trap I've fallen into many many times is buying shares when the PE ratio was low, <laughs> but it all, always invar- almost invariably meant that the E was too high, mm. not that the P was too low. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense to move into metrics which are more holistic, like sales, as you mentioned, or replacement cost. So replacement costs is a good one because that brings us on to the capital cycle. And this is this is super interesting. So um, obviously you are one of the co-authors. Well, Edward Chancellor is the author of the book. It's a collection of writings from mm. Marathon Capital Account, a book which is currently selling for £400 because it's out of print. And I think I'm going to I think I'm going to auction off my copy. And what we should do is we should auction off a copy and donate the proceeds to the Library of Mistakes. That would be a good thing to do. But that book was brilliant, and it was pretty revolutionary at the time. How did you and colleagues sort of come to this conclusion? Because it was, I mean, today people understand this concept, but when that book came out, which I think was in 2004, so 18 years ago, it was a, it was a really new concept. Well, I think part of it was, and it goes back to the setting up of Marathon in 1986, there were three guys in a room in London, uh, and the consensus at that time, particularly if you were a global or international investor, is you needed people all over the world gathering information. And one of the things that we were very fortunate about is it coincided with the information era, and we could just sit in a basement room in London and information would come to us. The next, the next important decision point was... Why would we look at earnings? Because earnings fluctuate a lot. And if there's a big world out there and you're three people in a room, you simply cannot look at things that are fluctuating a lot. You have to, th- you have to look at things that move hardly at all. So you've got the time to notice them, especially if they're in a long, a long way away, such as in Japan or Malaysia or something. So we, and because uh, competition and capital allocation changes relatively slowly that was something the supply side became something we could look at so we had to get even outside the business cycle framework because the business cycle was also fluctuating too fast for us to keep up with it and that's where the sort of 12-year turnover period and the long-term supply side came from um and uh there if you go back to the um the famous boston consulting group quadrants where all companies are allocated into four um, uh, quadrants, you know, the famous cash cow or stars. Or mm. And that led to the insight that you could be anywhere on that matrix, providing the company was being managed in a way that was consistent with the matrix. So you could be in a growth stock that was growing, or you could be in a value stock that was shrinking. That would, And we found out quite early on that a very good place to be was value stocks that were shrinking. And one of the things the banking sector has not done in the last 10 years, and should have done, has been to shrink their balance sheets aggressively and to say to the regulators who are interfering in their business, no, enough. We are cutting our loans. We're going to raise, we're going to ration credit so the net interest margins go up, even in a low interest rate environment, and we're paying all the dosh out to shareholders. Because you can't, we're not, we refuse to be regulated into an environment where our shares sell at half book value. But they have been Which is what is happening. 
but they, the regulators wouldn't allow them to do that, presumably. I mean, and also there's all the, all this money has to find a home somewhere, doesn't it? I don't see how they could stop them. But most of the people who manage banks are rather more interested in their knighthoods on retirement than looking after the shareholders' interest. Well, Russell, would the banks be able to do that? I mean, you're a, you're effectively a bank analyst, right? I did actually start as a bank analyst, and I think it was one of the best things I ever did to understand a bank. Uh, as uh, someone who was a lawyer, discovering the banks were commercial operations was a shock. I thought, how could any any anybody be allowed to run something like this? And then when I discovered that they also made money, I thought, this is ridiculous. But anyway, uh, it, it's, it's the history. So I, I look at the history of banking, uh, and Jeremy's right, but he's also wrong because obviously they have controlled the bank balance sheets. I mean, at one stage we had a thing called credit controls and. Basically, if you were not West, you went along to see the governor. He said, this year, guys, it'll be uh, 8%. You'll be making 8% more loans this year. And here are the things that we kind of think within that 8% you should be doing. And then he would raise his eyebrow. So the question is, are we going back to that or not? And the whole point about Big Bang was to get away from it. But it was over and it was dead and it was gone forever. So obviously, my big call is we're going back to it. And that loan I mentioned to Jaguar Land Rover, the loan to those... Uh, those electricity providers tell me that that is back. So the banks are captured. They should trade at half times book because they're not commercial operations. It is banking with Chinese characteristics. And we know that the right valuation for banking with Chinese characteristics is 50% discount to book value. Mm. Now, whether they should have fought against it or not, it doesn't matter. But Jeremy's right about the uh, their need to get the right level of gongs. And I think that is a, you know, the agents don't play to the same game. The agents are playing to a different game. I think Jeremy very very eloquently summed up the game the agents were playing to. But the low valuation of Chinese banks probably is due to the periodic occurrence of massive levels of bad debts, mm. whereas the new loans you're talking about are loans with a government guarantee. So these are low-risk loans. Yeah. I find myself very conflicted with banks. I can see how the, the earnings are going to surprise on the upside. I can see how credit risk is going to be lower than expected. But at the same time, I can see that this is a product of government interference. So structurally, that suggests to me it's not the place to be, but cyclically, probably. So, I mean, I don't usually have a problem having a black and white answer to just about anything in life, never mind finance. I think it's cultural. But uh, the banks, I think, are quite tricky because the earnings could surprise on the upside. And as you point out, they're, they're now making loans to anybody they want, effectively risk-free. Not quite anybody they want, but all the COVID loans, the Land Rover loans, the energy loans, and who knows what else the government has got up its sleeve that they can lend to risk-free. But what? But to, to your point, doesn't that mean they're more captured? But Isn't they, that good? I mean, it's like a regulated utility, except they don't have customer complaints. Well, they do have customer complaints. No, but from, 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 from me. <laughs> From, I do my best. They have customer complaints from the liability side, I think. Whether they have any, I don't think there are many complaints from the asset side, given the price they're being forced to lend that. But us on the liability side, we'll do our very best to keep complaining to the banks. But they, I mean, it's a perfect regulated utility, isn't it? You don't have the issues of the commodity price or, or customers are going to repay their loans or the government will repay their loans. But the picture Russell's painting. Uh, half book value sounds like fantastic to me. I, I find myself in a problem. I'm, I'm recommending to my clients that they invest in, in companies that are producing reasonable cash flow who have got, who have borrowed lots of money, particularly if they borrowed long at fixed interest rates. And therefore, it's difficult to then turn around and say, oh, by the way, you should also invest in these people who are lending lots of money. And the difference may be just the time horizon. And uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have the history of what happened in the 1970s to the banks. But when money was worth less if you're in the business of lending money when somebody repays the loan it's actually got less real value 
So did banks suffer from that? Well, it was complicated because they went bust in 1974. So not West was probably bankrupt, but it was for a different reason. So if you're looking at the total return over the 70s, it's very difficult to X out this great financial collapse that came along in 74 and the, the secondary market banking banking crisis and the, and the, the near destruction of NatWest. So, uh, but on, I mean, my view is on the whole, it wasn't a good place to invest in that period. There were much better places to be investing in the post-World War II financial repression than in banking. Remember, remember this was uh, called 363 Banking. Lend, uh, take deposits at three, lend at six, and on the golf course for three. Yeah. And the reason you could be on the golf course for three is there was a limit to how much credit you could lend. If there's credit controls, it was all gone by it was all gone by two thirty. So you might as well go to the. Uh, I, I, you know, I do get accused of being over pessimistic, but it seems to me that's the perfect banking system for the new era, and uh, all our politicians will will love it. What do you pay for that sort of banking? I don't think you pay much for it, but as I say, I have difficulties because cyclically they might surprise, or cyclically they will surprise. Well, if they're on a very low rating, it's. Um Sounds like the odds are in their favor. Now, listen, you're quoted, Russell, on the dust jacket of the of that book, Capital Account. What got you interested in that subject? Yeah, I'm on capital returns. I was just a young whippersnapper, just a mere boy when Capital Account came out. Uh, so the Q ratio got me interested. Ah. So I run a course in finance. And as you know, I know I don't know one end of a company from the other. Uh, but I did come across Tobin's Q, which is a measure. Tobin used to write, I would say he wrote about the capital cycle. It's fascinating. If it, I mean, it's in different terms. Clearly, the terms of an economist, not a stock picker. And even Keynes, I think, wrote some stuff that you could say is to do with the capital cycle. So I obviously came to it from that angle. And we, in my course, we look at the mean reversion of Q and, and the cyclically adjusted PE. But, of course, most fund managers want something that's intensely practical. They don't want kind of theoretical stuff. So they all kept saying to me, does it, does it have any relation to how you pick stocks? And the obvious relation, where it fits somewhat, but not perfectly, is the capital cycle. So I was brought to the capital cycle from a top-down approach. And then because I've known Jeremy for a long time, and we had long discussions in 1995 about the capital cycle in Asia and its imminent collapse, uh, I could see that there was some sort of crossover. I mean, what I was writing was, was really monetary stuff. And when I sat down to talk to Jeremy, what he was talking was about the misallocation of capital and overvaluation because of it. And I could see the, the blend. So I think it's been a developing interest for me for many years. But it, it links from the top down, from the, the, the Q ratio, Tobin's Q. I think it fits quite nicely with the capital cycle. And therefore, there may be an overlap between the monetary economics, which Jeremy originally set out to pursue, and the capital cycle. There could be a link between them. They're not completely divorced. There is a synthesis there, which you know I think is really, really interesting. Do you have an ability to look at the queue on a stock or sector level, Jeremy? And are, do you look at the replacement value of assets when you're investing? Uh, we look at the replacement cost of the assets and relate it to the current enterprise value or market cap of the company insofar as we are able. I mean, these are very sort of rustic calculations. But as uh, Kane said, the goal is to be roughly right rather than precisely <laughs> wrong. But it's a really difficult thing to do, of course. But the, the period of which Russell speaks, you know, I was perplexed by why these companies were growing so fast in reasonably mature industries. And the answer was the Q ratio. Because if your, if your market value is three times the cost of building things, you can create $3 of shareholder value by spending $1 of capital. And that's what they were all doing. And compounding it in uh, pre-Asian crisis by borrowing foreign currency terms 
and not hedging the currency. So the earnings were inflated on top of the impending doom of oversupply, which duly arrived in 1998. Seven. Seven. Of course. Read the I, book. I, I did, uh, I did brew, brew myself my own beer. And I, did, I did call it Roughly Right. That was the name of the beer. I thought that was appropriate in the circumstances. But this, um, I mean, how did that crystallize in 1997? Do you want to just explain, because you, you go into it in your book? Well, I'll explain it and try to see where I think there's the synthesis between the two approaches, which is it's obviously that the cost of capital is wrong and financial capital is abundant. And when financial capital is abundant, it has to have an impact on the supply of real capital, productive capital, which I think is what Jeremy has just explained. The, the problem was that the fund managers extrapolated that and believed that this was the status quo, that somehow this was the system that would always be there, that there would be an abundance of this capital. And as Jeremy pointed out, quite a lot of it was actually foreign currency, debt capital as well. And of course, nothing goes on forever. Hard to believe sometimes when you look at uh, what happens in financial markets, but nothing goes on forever. So my job was to say that it was coming to an end, and there are lots of ways that I tried to do that. But fundamentally, it was this. Uh, they all ran current account deficits. And as time progressed, the current account deficits were increasingly funded with short-term capital and not long-term capital, not foreign direct investment. So it wasn't an outrageous forecast to say that one day the short-term capital, the portfolio capital, wouldn't come. And when it didn't come, the price of money would go up, as we saw in the United Kingdom in 1992, and all of this would come to an end. The question, the only problem was keeping your job long enough to, for it to come to pass. And of course, one day it came to pass, the cost of capital went up and the massive malinvestment was evident for everybody to see. And then, of course, they uh, devalued the exchange rates. And if you've got lots of foreign currency debt funding local currency assets and you devalue the exchange rate, then it, it really happens. So um, it was nice at that time to speak to Jeremy as kind of a lonely bear, to hear someone from the bottom up sort of confirming what I thought, that this was some form of insanity going on. The question was, what would turn it around? And to me, it was it, it was reflexive, Soros's reflexive. Mm. Just putting the financial capital in was changing the fundamentals because in a managed exchange rate, you forced them to create liquidity. But when you brought the financial capital out, you would change the fundamentals back the other way. So there were no fundamentals. There were no fundamentals. The fundamentals were the product of a really bizarre monetary system. And the world's full of really bizarre monetary systems. They come in all shapes and forms. And I think that creates great opportunities for investors. Uh, but it's nice to have a look at the capital cycle to know where you are. And nobody was looking at the capital cycle. And back to what Jeremy said earlier, really funny that the main tool of valuation in those days was the PE band chart. And you mentioned earlier that you made mistakes buying things because they were low PEs. And every time I would walk in to see a fund manager in 95 or 96, they would show me this PE band chart. And they would show me that it had been at 17 times and it was already at 14. And this was the lowest ever in the history of the world. Actually, the chart ran to 1991 usually. And how could you not be a buyer of these equities? But it turned out that the E was a monetary fabrication. And that's why, uh, you know, ever since then, I've tried to tried to relate monetary systems to the allocation of capital, the fundamental in businesses, without knowing one end of a business from another. You do know one end of a business from another, but one thing that you're, you know, that's coming out of this is we're in the same sort of field today, aren't we? Because there's just all this capital going into tech. I mean, I read in Bloomberg Business Week the, a couple of weeks ago that there were now a thousand unicorns, which is some trillions of, of dollars. Well, I mean, how does this all end up? I mean, you, Jeremy, think it all it ends up by the, the value of the big tech stocks going down a lot. Well, w w we will see. 
I mean, we've 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 tried to run almost every argument on this topic, and the growth stocks go up and the value stocks go down. Um, I think uh, until possibly the last eighteen months, where well, I think the situation is a a bit different, and the um, the high tech sector. I mean, of course, the 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 icons of the growth universe are such very remarkable companies. This wasn't the case in 1999, 2000, the dot-com bubble. Of course. Because they were dependent on external capital, and you didn't know what terms they'd raise the external capital. So fundamentally, you couldn't do a per-share calculation on any company in the TMT sector. It was very tricky, whereas now you can. And of course, uh, those MPVs are very high, and they're inflated by very low interest rates. So we've been looking what's going to create mean reversion. So, I mean... Perhaps the Q ratio is mean reverting, but there hasn't been much sign of that in the last 15 years. And one forgets that at the beginning of Apple's great run in about 2008, Apple was a company with negative, on our basis of looking at things, it was a company with negative value because the market cap was less than the company's rainy day fund. This was just after the creation of the iPod, but before the launch of the iPhone. Mm. So it was analyzable then that it should have po- the equity should have positive value. And uh, so obviously we asked Apple's CFO why they didn't buy all the equity back. So that's an interesting question. We have long board meetings about it. <laughs> and some of us want to buy back the equity. And others, based on experience, say, we must keep the rainy day fund because we just know something's going to go wrong. But of course, nothing's gone wrong. So they're now buying back stock at a market value, enterprise value of about two or three trillion or whatever it is, rather than buying it back at zero. So maybe that's how these things are mean reverting. It's funny. Maybe the the damage is done further down the chain. I mean, I I guess that, you know, some of the big uh, tech stocks have got um, very resilient business models and actually not such staffed valuations. So, you know, a Google or even a, even a Facebook or Meta, uh, the, the valuations aren't that daft. And if I'm not sure that Facebook is going to completely stop growing because I think, you know, small businesses are going to carry on advertising, whether there's 200 or 205 billion um, people on the, on, the, on the channel. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But I think there's probably, there's a lot of... Um, damage to be done in the private markets, which is obviously less visible and we can't see where the, valu- where the valuations are. But um, the Q ratio, one, I mean, one thing that strikes me about that is it's very difficult as you move to a stock market, which has got more intangible assets than tangible assets, the Q ratio becomes less relevant. Is there a way of squaring that? Is there, I don't know, well, and we, in the, the course I teach, we just check it against the cyclically adjusted PE, which is a measure of earnings. It's not a measure of any form of asset whatsoever. And they stay very close, and which is suspicious, strange, and a bit peculiar, because the point you make seems like a good point, and yet they don't stray too far from each other over time. And of course, we have a, a rapid acceleration in the intangible valuations, but there has been a drift in that for quite a long time, uh, particularly with, um, with brands more before the technology. So for whatever reason, and not one that I can uh, perhaps logically explain, the CAPE and the Q stay pretty close, uh, suggesting that somehow the Q is picking up what you need it to pick up. Jeremy's point is the important one. I mean, it looks like Q doesn't mean revert anymore. Really, since I would say 1995 is when it seemed to lurch off into what Irving Fisher once famously called a permanently higher plateau. (laughs) 
But I suggest in, in my book on the Asian crisis that that's a product of a very peculiar monetary policy that's been in place since then, because that was a devaluation of the renminbi. And I think they're desperately connected. Uh, and that forced a lot of capital into America from the Chinese, forced out interest rates, forced out inflation, created a abundance of financial capital, which was used to gear the hell out of anything with a cash flow. Actually, you didn't even have to have a cash flow. You could gear the hell out of it. So my opinion, and uh, it'll be right one day, maybe, is that the Q is definitely a mean reverting uh, thing. And that time has come because we have changed the monetary system away from that. Uh, Volcker used to call it the, uh, the hybrid system to something different. So the monetary distortions will be very different. They'll always be there, but they're different monetary distortions. And I think we'll begin to see the main reversion of the queue. If I'm right that major fund management groups are, are compulsory liquidators of large cap stocks, then there's even more chance that it'll be mean reverting. So we'll see. So should we just turn to... Um, I mean, I, I, can I just yeah, say, of course. I, I think you can do something about intangible assets. And in fact, there is an essay in Capital Account about the valuations of drug stocks. And drug stocks have been on a huge uh, uh, bull market run. And the, the mother of all drug stocks was Pfizer. Yep. And um, the insight we had then was that a pharmaceutical company consisted of two parts. There was the science department run by scientists in white coats. And there was the existing products and that business was run by lawyers and sales reps, but particularly by lawyers. But because you knew the value of the market cap and because you knew the value of the in-place product base, because those drugs would eventually go off patent and have a very low NPV, the residual was the, um, the value being placed on the new products. And so in the case of Pfizer, we took the research and development budget, we capitalized it by the highly scientific method of multiplying it by eight. <laughs> And it turned out the residual value on the queue of the science division was eight times. It was simply a staggering valuation. And need to say the, the share performed very poorly for an extended period after that, as, as, as the air came out of the, uh, what appeared to have been a bubble. So I think you can do something about intangible assets, even if it's something as rustic as just multiplying the, the marketing budget or the R&D budget by 10. Yeah, I, th I think the problem with with that for some of the tech companies and particularly some of the newer SaaS companies is that there, there's a lot of um, massaging going on about exactly what they're spending on marketing, what they're spending in R&D. And certainly I've looked at a number of these stocks where you know they're making losses. They claim to have a viable business. They claim to be spending huge amounts in marketing and it, it, the numbers just don't add up. Well, a lot and, of the problem arises from the accounting. Yes, of course. Which, yeah depreciates these things over one year's expenditure. So they appear as something that's negative in accounting land. And remember, the databases used by value investors traditionally are based on accounting-derived data in the databases. So I, I, I think there's a confusion here between economic reality and accounting, which has led to this theory of intangible assets simply doesn't translate into some sort of value paradigm. I, I don't think that's correct. I think it can do. No, I, well, I mean, the accounting clearly doesn't fit for fit for purpose because the accounting rules were designed for you know a time when there were fixed assets factories. We, we can't be rude about the accountants, otherwise this interview is going to go on forever. Well, no, we shouldn't because <laughs> you you might not know this, but Russell was actually very accomplished in the field of accounting. 
Russell, do you want to fess up to your to your skills in this area, or well, would you rather it was a secret that remained buried? I'll reveal it today for the first time because Jeremy may never speak to me again. But in 1991, sitting the sitting the Society of Investment Analysts UK exams, I won the prize for best accounting paper, Jeremy. So I hope you'll forgive me. I mean, I'm I'm not in some form of purgatory. Uh, I, I'm full of admiration because this is a fact that I didn't terrific. know about you until. See, one of the nice things about doing the podcast is you have to do research on your guests mm. and you mm. get to find out that this is actually buried away in one of Russell's many biographies. Mm. So the Society of Inve Investment Analyst Exams, for those of you who aren't um, geriatric, is the predecessor organization to the CFA Society, which I'm sure most listeners to the podcast will be, be aware I, of. I received a lovely silver plate and 500 quid. And the 500 quid was a lot of money in 1991. And I invested it, invested it wisely. 500 pounds. That's an amazing prize. Oh. Well, uh, Steve, can I just, I mean, I think the mean reversion problem in valuation between the haves and the have-nots is more likely to be solved by the have-nots because they have more control over what they do. And that's partly why I went on that rant about banking. They, by cutting their capital spending to effectively to nearly zero, they can use their free cash flow from their depreciation to buy back the shares, and eventually good things will happen. And that will shrink their balance sheet. They, the capital spending that they're undergoing, they don't need to, to do because they don't need branches anymore, and they, their legacy systems will have to be binned They'd be better off starting. They'd be, I mean, one theory about the banks is it'd be better off just sort of shrinking to zero and letting the revolutes of this world take over their business. And they shrink to being a commercial lending business without without so much on the other side of the balance sheet. Would that be the the solution you would look at, or? Well, it's what I would be trying to do if I was on the board of Lloyd's Bank. Yes. Well, I'm sure the, the calls will be ringing, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't think so. I and, think they're aware of my views. And I don't think he'd accept that. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, um, Jeremy, you, you, so I've alluded to it earlier. You know, today, many investors and professional fund managers have embraced concentration. I mean, Nick Train's probably one of those very concentrated fund managers. Terry Smith's the obvious uh, other example, you hold a few quality stocks, hold on to them for a long time. You've got a very unconventional approach because you've got a lot of stocks in your portfolio. So it sounds like a recipe for benchmark hugging, actually having you know a large population of stocks. You just talk about why you've adopted that system and why it has worked. Um, how many stocks? How many? Stocks well, it have? hasn't worked very well over the last uh, eight years. I mean, our returns over the last eight years or so are slightly below the index. In the context of the sort of the market it's been, that's, in my view, not too bad a result. But that doesn't put bread on the table for pensioners. You have to beat your benchmark. And we found that very difficult in a, in a growth world. I suppose it started really from the conundrum of what do you do as a fund manager if you're very successful and your success has been based on some sort of discipline. It doesn't matter what the discipline was, but you followed it and miraculously it turned out to be right and, and the pension funds you've never heard of are knocking on your door and trying to give you money. And um, that's what was happening to us in the, in the decade of the noughties um, after, after we'd very much distinguished ourselves by going pro-value in 99 and 2000, therefore avoiding the dot-com 
collapse. So the money is coming in, and um, uh, what do you do? Because you're you you either buy you either with your money buy a smaller number of blue chip stocks because you will preserve your maneuverability, which is fantastically important to fund managers for some unknown reason. Um, but of course, one of the reasons it's popular is it's just popular with the compliance people. You, they know you can get out of Pfizer in an emergency mm. if there was to be one. Whereas if you're in Diana shipping, it's not so clear you can get out in an emergency. So the pressure is to you get your record, and because fund managers, as they become more successful, one of the bizarre ironies is they become more and more interested in becoming more commercially successful. They don't become more and more interested in becoming better investors. It's one of the cruel get jokes that the gods have played on us. So the focus becomes more on AUM rather than return AUM growth rather than return on the existing AUM, and they drift up into the blue chips, which are not necessarily the investments which created the record in the first place. The other th one other thing you can do is okay, so I'll continue to buy mid caps, which gave me this record. I'll just buy more of them. Well, the marketplace in which we live hates that with a vengeance. And a lot of the reasons, there's, there are many reasons for it. Lack of conviction, closet indexing. Well, I don't think any of those things really apply to us. But you and the people who advise big funds, well, I can create your 400 stock portfolio by hiring 20 managers with 20 stocks, which is by and large what funds are doing. But they're the same 20 stocks. Not necessarily. One might be in Coke and the other might be in Pepsi. Different stocks, you see. And so, well, the proof will be in the pudding about how these very concentrated portfolios perform. My hunch is that they are, are massively gross, growth biased because that's what's worked. They're massively size biased for the reasons around liquidity promoted by the uh, compliance people. And we'll see how it does. I mean, I, I think our portfolio of 400, of which, let us say, 380 are very inexpensive, I think it's going to do quite well. I'm sure it will. But just talk a little bit about, you, you said that you've had a difficult period and an extended difficult period. How do you cope with that? Because there must be tremendous pressure from your clients. There must be tremendous pressure from your colleagues. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and you've presumably you've had periods in the past where you haven't done as well as you'd hoped. What, what's the secret to surviving a, a, a difficult period? Because I'm sure lots of, lots of listen, listeners will be thinking about their own portfolios and wanting to get your, how do you, how do you keep your, how do you get up in the morning and feel, feel cheerful and not make the wrong decisions? Oh, well, Russ will know the answer to this. Who was it who said if, about the bandwagon effect, that it can't roll on forever, it won't? I think it's a Stein's law, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. I think it's Stein's law. So it's nice to know about inevitability. Inevitability helps you with the patience problem. Over the last few years with growth stocks, a limited number of growth stocks performing so well, it's become, it's really quite difficult to make that argument. So in Russell's world, perhaps the inflation will arrive and interest rates still won't go up. And I, I think it's going to be critical whether the central banks buy the bullet and decide to sell the long bonds they've built, they've bought. But if they do sell them, that should steepen, in my view, that the yield curve should start to steepen. There's no sign of the steepening of, of the yield curve. 
but they haven't sold any bonds yet. So we'll see what happens. I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think everybody who's in the, in the value growth sector is looking for interest rates as the, the key determinant as to when the shift comes. I think it'll be a different one. So if you hold yields down by forcing savings institutions to buy them and save, sorry, sell equities, that revert, that reverts. That is when value will significantly outperform growth because they're all clustered into growth. But it's, it is in no way the traditional way that this would happen. The traditional way this was happening is exactly as Jeremy says, interest rates would start going up to reflect higher inflation, and that would be the beginning of the rotation. So nine out of 10 bears will tell you interest rates are going up and the market's coming down. Uh, I'm the one out of 10 bear who says, no, there's a whole new devious way in which the rotation from growth to value can take place. And, uh, you know, obviously I've got a, a pretty positive view on the, on the earnings for some of the value stocks as well because of this change in the nature of things. So uh, that is, uh, most people would say, well, you're unlikely to be right on that because it's such a rare thing. Usually it's rate, interest rates going up. So if I'm going to be right, I'm going to be mm. right for a very rare, rare and peculiar reason. Then there's our old friend, the law of unintended consequences. Mm. And I think probably the, um, the mania for setting up ESG funds and the consequences of ESG funds not being where you should invest, I think it's a record for a strategy going wrong because look what's happening to the commodity and the fossil fuel prices. And you can see why supply side is fantastically powerful. Yes. No, there's a Once you're not allowed to invest in these things, it's not a short, it's a short lag between the oil companies deciding they hate their core business and the core business becoming very profitable. And exactly the same thing happened to the tobacco companies 20 years ago. It was the best sector of the market. I had an interesting meeting with a man who runs a metal bashing company in Spain. Uh, and I said to him, well, what would you do if tomorrow morning you had to make this company more green? And he let out a huge sigh and said, I'd have to buy Japanese steel, which I thought was a fascinating answer because if you really are into ESG, you should be buying Japanese steel because it's one of the lowest carbon emitting forms of steel to be produced. And by definition, we will be consuming steel next year, the year after, and the year after. And yet my understanding of how ESG approached this is to say no steel or something to that effect. So we need a more nuanced approach to this. But I obviously, I think it's fascinating in relation to the capital cycle, which I read from top down, not bottom up like Germany. If you, Jeremy, if you begin to staunch the flow of financial capital to a sector, then eventually, my understanding of the capital cycle is eventually the returns will go up. So this ESG, by being kind of blanket, indiscriminate, is creating opportunities for investors in, in firms I strongly believe will be seen as green. In a few years from now, if you make green air steel, but it's not green steel, but it's green air steel, why isn't that part of the green solution? And if you're funding CapEx to build more capacity on green air steel because we're not buying Chinese steel, then you're part of the solution. You're not part of the problem. And uh, fashion shifts, and let's see if the ESG fashion shifts to something more reasonable. And that's the time when the capital cycle would, I think, as a non-expert on the capital cycle, turn in the favor of those types of stocks. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of my analytical life trying to get capital in intensive businesses to invest less. And thanks to the um, thanks to global warming, I've finally got my wish. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? And in fact, the same applies. Clearly, a lot of these businesses should be should be trying to get smaller. Not in necessarily in terms of reserves, but in terms of annual output, or in the case of an airline, seat miles flown per year. They should be trying to get smaller because that's the only way they can guarantee the emissions go down. Would your opinion be the same if we stopped trading with China on a point of principle? 
Well, this is in, the, the whole debate is quite interesting because while most fund managers were busy ticking boxes, we sort of took a rather detached view of the, not so much the sustainable business and governance thing, but traditionally we've been quite hot on that, but on the environmental side. And um, we've been persuaded by our clients that we really do need to focus on this. And what we have now is, I think, an example of a last mover advantage. <laughs> because the ultimate, the, the reason there is a, a global problem, if there is a global problem, is because of excessive consumption of Chinese coal by industries that we have put in China. So quite what the fund manager is supposed to do about this, I'm not quite sure. I mean, it'd be fair enough to possibly order them to divest from Chinese coal mines, but that doesn't solve the problem anyway, any more than divesting BP helps, really. It's simply owned by somebody else. And those, those arguments have been quite well made. Yeah, I mean, it ends up in the, in the hands of private equity who have, haven't got an ESG manager or compliance person. Well, they have the same clients, so they'll be drawn into it too. But it, if the... Why would you, so the fund management industry has become obsessed with the first derivative, whereas they should be focusing on the second derivative. And why would you ever invest on the first derivative when the second derivative is available? So in my view, uh, carbon emitters that are getting smaller are going to be fantastic investments. And from a second derivative point of view, they're moderately virtuous because they're improving their, they're lessening the carbon of their outputs. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the whole ESG thing has been, well, it's just been extraordinary the way people have just applied, a, stuck a label, stuck a sticker on, on, on the, on the product and called it ESG without any clue about, uh, about the, or, or an, any clue about what it really means and any real thought process. And it's been fascinating the past couple of weeks seeing people say, well, the defense companies should be ESG now because that's part of what we need, right? I mean, Those the good guys need more bombs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. The important I, thing in this business is to know who's wearing a white hat and who's wearing a, bl a black hat. But nobody seems to wear a gray hat. So uh, knowing in advance who's about to wear the black hat, I think, it's, and who's about to wear the white hat is probably quite a good way to make some money. But I think it's quite difficult to see who... Fashion declares is the guy in the white hat and who's the guy in the black. I'm talking about ESG here, not uh, not events in uh, Eastern Europe. No, the, the whole ESG thing's been quite extraordinary. I mean, the when you I I looked at doing a course on ESG and I went and interviewed quite a few people who were real experts in, in the area. And I came to the conclusion that it was something that was incredibly difficult to do a course on. And so I decided not to. But when I was talking to people about it, you know, because the CFA, of course, have brought out an ESG course. And the, the CFA ESG, ESG course is basically, you know, a list of the UN goals. And so you, but there's no holistic view of companies. And the, the people who are really expert at applying ESG principles seem to be, no, they didn't have an ESG label outside their, their, on their fund. They just had been practicing this as part, as an integral part of their investment process for decades. So they kind of understood, you know, what was going on, what was a, what was a good company. Well, just, the same way as you, you've been very hot in governance for many years. Just on the G bit, I am the chairman of a UK listed company. Uh, and I received a letter from a shareholder suggesting that I should have more women on the board. So I thought that was interesting because we want to have a more diverse board. So I wrote back asking for more guidance to diversity and, you know, in particular, you know, how you would define diversity. Particularly, uh, given my background, whether they would consider that privately educated people dominating a board is a good thing or a bad thing, or whether there should be more diversity from 
educational background, and I received a letter back saying, put a woman on the board. Uh, we can't measure this other stuff, so we ain't that interested. That's so, not governance. That's, you know, we will, you know, you, you, if you can measure it, you can manage it. And if we can't measure it, we can't manage it. There's going to be too much effort. So, look, we can come back next year and suddenly they'd be really big on having people from uh, non-privately educated people on the board. Meanwhile, we'd, be, we'd have a woman on the board who's privately educated. I mean, there's no thought to it. So what, I, that's my one practical experience with the G-bet, that there isn't a great deal of thought going into it. There's a lot of box ticking going into it, but not no. a lot of thought going into it. No, absolutely. That's what you were saying, is box ticking. Listen, um, you've both um, gone it alone in the past sort of 10 years. I just wondered... I wanted to finish by just asking, you know, what's it like sort of working for yourself after a period working, in Russell's case, you were working for a big brokerage, a, a large partnership, in your case, Jeremy. And have has there been any big lessons? Have you learned any big lessons? I mean, it's not, not a surprise that you've both been incredibly successful, but looking back today, is there anything that you would have done differently knowing what you know now? I don't know which of you... Well, I'll start. I mean, I work for a company called CLSA, which never thought of itself as a big broken company, didn't behave as a big broken company. So I didn't find myself constrained or trammeled in the way that most people who work for broken companies are. So in, in my case, it wasn't a, a major uh, leap. But the thing I've learned is I should have done it a long time because you get better clients. Because you get clients who are actually interested in what you're saying. And quite often in a broken company, you're trooped in to see somebody because they're kind of available. And the other thing I find in my doing what I do, I attract more principals as clients than agents, or at least agents prepared to think like principals, uh, which is a dying, a dying breed. And it is much more fun because I learn much more talking to principals than I do talking to agents. So my, my lesson to anybody in this business or any business is if you can deal with principals, do it. Uh, because it's, first of all, they've got, they've got much better incentives You'll learn a lot more. And uh, I wish I'd learned that lesson when I was a bit younger so that I could have structured a business around principles and not agents a bit earlier. Now, having said that, most of my friends are agents. So I'm also quite friendly with agents and like them as well. <laughs> I need to be clear on that. But it's good to have a mix. And, and I think if you surround yourself by a world of agents, I think you're going to get a particularly perverse view of the world. So that's my lesson from, from being independent, Steve. Thank you. Jeremy, have you got any reflections? Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm tortured by uh, what Charlie Munger says about asset managers as not being a very productive way to spend a life. So that really is your question phrased in a different way. <laughs> and I look back on it and uh, I've had a, I've really enjoyed it. I'm not saying it's been packed full of social meaning, but the, the challenges have been immense. And I think the particular one, which Russell has alluded to, you have to drive in the direction of principles, being a principal rather than an agent. Otherwise, I think you just lose it. And that's what we've tried to do at Marathon and here at Hosking Partners. And as time goes by, we would much rather have an investment in a highly liquid, com illiquid company, 86% owned by the insiders, <laughs> only than, than a big company with a big free float that is li liquid as water. Because in the family business, someone really cares. And we ask ourselves that all the time. Who really cares about this company delivering results in the long term? Because we're going to hold it for quite a long time. But the reason we hold shares for quite a long time is because other whole pe people hold them for a very short period of time. Therefore, the long-term alpha can't be discounted in the present price. Otherwise, everyone would be a long-termer. 
and they're not. So it's really an arbitrage as to where the alpha is. And if the world migrates, and it's a it's a, it's a development of the capital cycle approach, which of course was based on Groucho Marx's "I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member." This also, in our view, applies in the behavioural field. If everyone's a short termer, the long term alpha must be enormous. And if it's not, then the world works in a rather even more curious way than I thought it did. Before we finish in our last question, I just wanted to ask you about football because I just recorded a podcast with Jim O'Neill and he's been desperately upset about Manchester United. And I looked at the Manchester United chart and Manchester United is the same price today as when it was floated 10 years ago. And S&P 500 is what trebled in that period, I guess. You've made money in the Premier League. I mean, why is it just that the, the fact that the club was floated at too high a price? I mean, what, when you look at Manchester United, you're an expert on football. You're an expert on invest, investment. What, do, what should we make of it? Well, I'm not an expert on football. I mean, our, our, uh, at Crystal Palace, listen for the cheers, uh, our chairman and chief executive is 20% of the club personally. And he is uh, a very astute person and he's able to mesh takeover fees with player salaries. And it's the old accounting dilemma between expenses that are expensed and expenses which are capitalized. And most people aren't very good at thinking in those two entirely contradictory dimensions at the same time and meshing it together. And Steve is brilliant at that. You're still a shareholder. Oh, they dilute me the whole time. <laughs> and I protest <laughs> and I'm ignored. <laughs> well, listen, both of you, thank you so much for um, spending your time. Before we go, I always ask people um, if there's a book that they would recommend to a young person that was looking to come into the in industry. Jeremy, do you have a recommendation? The book I would recommend people to read, and particularly younger listeners, is a book called The Tao Jones Averages by Bennett Goodspeed. Is there any particular reason why you, you chose that? Or? There's a wonderful chapter on the demise of the Titanic which you'll recall received a message from the Carpathian steaming in the opposite direction, that there was icebergs ahead. And that message got jumbled up in the guests' other cables and never reached the captain. Uh, there's a wonderful chapter. And there's also another a cartoon with a would-be investor standing in front of a chemical plant that's burning. And he's saying to his broker, to hell with a diversified portfolio. You're to sell ABC Chemical and sell it now. <laughs> Great. Russell, how about you? I think I have to spring to the defense here. I mean, uh, as somebody who's from Belfast, my father may have been a butcher, but my grandfather was a sailor and my grandmother worked in the rope works. And, we, and they, they watched that ship sail out. And as they would always say, she was all right when she left here. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's quite, a, can I have two? Because there's a boring one, but I think it's essential, which is Triumph of the Optimists, which is the, the history of financial returns. But that's probably not going to get any young person enthusiastic about our business, but it will get them calibrated to the possible. Uh, and the population in general is entirely uncalibrated to the possible. I know this because I live near pensioners and they wander in and say, all I want is a sound 12% per annum. <laughs> <laughs> so it is possible, it's really important to get calibrated, but, but why not the money game by Adam Smith from the 60s? 
which tells you how much fun it can be and how much delusion there is, how much psychology there is, and how much there is beyond accountancy. Because I think most young people think investment management is some sort of deranged form of accountancy. They may not be far wrong, but the the money game uh, lets you know that this is... This is a sport for the Renaissance man or the Renaissance woman, Steve, and it comes out very well, I think, in the money game. It's one of my favorites, chapter 12, where he, he talks about the young ones, where they don't have the, they're not, they don't bear the scars of history. I was listening to a podcast by um, Shane Parrish, The Knowledge Project, with Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz, and he talks about venture capital scars, because of course, what failed last time is probably going to work this time in venture capital. It's quite quite an interesting parallel. Thank you both enormously. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Steve. Well, that was a fascinating discussion and one which I could have happily continued for much longer. Indeed, as soon as the microphones were switched off, the discussion became more intense and actually quite funny. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode let me know what you think. You can email me at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. We would love to get your feedback and particularly ideas as to how we can explore this really fascinating topic further. Thank you. So I just wanted to finish this podcast off with an additional session with Russell. What we talked about with Russell and Jeremy was effectively what we were looking to explain was the capital cycle in the age of financial repression. And Russell and I, on the Monday following the Thursday that we did the recording, Russell was back in London and we went to a presentation and met with David Einhorn. And David Einhorn was talking about inflation. And apart from his macro hedges, he was hedging in the stock portfolio in three ways. He was buying stocks where there's an element of price-related fees. So a good example of that is the payments industry. So where there's a natural inflation hedge in revenues. He was also um, advocating stocks where there was a sunk cost that might inflate for its competitors. So for example, if you're a house builder and you've got a long land bank, that land bank is going to inflate for your competitors and that will allow you to inflate your margins over time. And he's also buying stocks, and this ties in very closely with the capital cycle, where there's been a lack of investment, and preferably where there's been a lack of investment and there's a long construction lead time, which will allow the players to benefit from demand continuing to increase and supply not keeping up. And a good example of that is the mining industry. And so, Russell, I just wanted to, to finish this podcast because. I wanted you to explain your theory about why the capital cycle will be so important in an age of financial repression, because we've had 10 years of falling rates and the growth stocks going through the roof. And that's not going to be the simple way of making money in the stock market going forward. So could you please just explain that view? Sure. Well, the capital cycle relies on a relationship between the supply of financial capital and the creation of corporate capital. And the two things are not always in balance. And we can create a monetary system that means they're desperately out of balance. I think that's what we just did, Steve. I would call it the hybrid system. I stole that from Paul Volcker. Uh, And that was the linking of the renminbi to the dollar and undervaluation. But frankly, after the Asian financial crisis, lots of people did that. 
Now, the consequences, people will find this hard to relate to the capital cycle, so bear with me. But the consequences of that is there was a profusion of financial capital available in the developed world. Uh, interest rates were depressed. These central bankers from the Asia, and particularly the PBOC, were buying lots of government bonds that held down interest rates. Of course, it freed up the saving system of the US as well to go in pursuit of other ventures. Uh, it, it kept down inflation because they were exporting at very low prices. So that's one side of the capital cycle, an abundance of financial capital. Now, the other side was by holding down the value of their exchange rates, they made their corporate capital incredibly productive. Not just the existing corporate capital, but everything that they then added to that. And this was China was particularly uh, egregious at this. And as we all know, added huge amounts of corporate capital, all subsidized for a second time, not just by a cheap exchange rate, but also uh, by very cheap credit from the state-run banking system. So that monetary system actually did have a huge role in the capital cycle. It depressed returns on, let us call them old economy stocks, not a phrase I'm that familiar with, but heavy asset stocks are capital heavy stocks. Uh, and of course, promoted a huge period of financial engineering. Uh, and not all the stocks that have led the stock market boom have been financially engineered stocks, but quite a few of them have, and quite a few of them have borrowed money to buy back their own equity, et cetera. And one thinks of spheres like private equity in particular. So that abundance of financial capital has been useful. And what's it been used for? It's effectively been geared up, gearing up existing income streams. In the new monetary system, and there are many things about this new monetary system, but at the core of it, uh, we are ostracizing China from the global trading regime. We are going our separate ways now, uh, potentially very quickly indeed at the moment. And that hybrid system is over. And the system that replaces it is each individual government attempting to inflate away its debts. Now, without going into detail on that, uh, what it means for the capital cycle in the age of financial repression, the end of the period of hybrid monetary system and the birth of financial repression, is there's a lot less competition coming from China. Uh, and the Chinese ability to add ever more corporate capital is reduced. So the value of the corporate capital that exists today in the non-China bit of the market, which may be not just China. China may have allies in this. Uh, they may be on the same side of this ball that China is going to become in. So we should expect higher returns from that corporate capital. But at the same time, a much reduced supply of financial capital. Uh, the governments, we can see this, even in, since the outbreak of this war, how the governments are needing this financial capital, steering it towards other bits of society, other bits of the economy, uh, energy diversification being obviously top of the agenda, but there's plenty of other things in terms of green agenda. So the financial capital that was once used for financial engineering is being pushed elsewhere. And the return on the corporate capital, if we're not dealing with China, is going to go up. Now that's a revolution for me in the uh, capital cycle. Uh, we all know, everybody listening to this will know that value investors have had a particularly difficult time for several years now in the death throes of that hybrid system. But in this system, uh, the meek shall indeed inherit the earth. Russell, that's a brilliant quote to end it with. We'll need to re-explore this subject, I think, at a later date, because one of the other issues is that, you know, loads of that financial capital has gone chasing the opportunity in venture capital and in tech, and that's another consequence. And we're, obviously, we're entering a period which none of us have experience of. So there's going to be lots more to talk about. But thank you so much for your time.